The Athletic. Perisic into Son. Son goes for goal! Hello everybody, welcome again to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm your host, Danny Kelly, and alongside me today is The Athletic's James Moore, somebody who really cares about the podcast, who's taken the time to turn up on a bank holiday. Um, the others, the, the Charlies and the Jacks of this world, yes, they've got family commitments, yes, they've got watertight contracts, which allow them to swan in and out, but I'm very grateful to James for being here. In fact, it reminds me, forgive me for this uh, diversion straight away, back in the day when Australia were the greatest cricket team the world has ever put shoes on, maybe the West Indies as well, but the great Australian team, they're out in India, um, and this is you, incidentally, so people can know you're here. Hello, James. Hello. Hi. This is the level of your commitment that, uh, that's required here. And they were out in India. It was 110 degrees out in the middle. And Alan Border, of course, the gritty Australian captain, was batting with Dean Jones, a brilliant player. The heat is extraordinary, and Jones is really struggling with it. Um, and he, more than once, he goes to Border and says, look, Skip, I'm really struggling here. Can I not um, – I'll have to go in. And uh, he says, no, give it. A, keep going, Dean. You'll be all right. And so they go on. Eventually, Jones scores 100 over a period of about four and a half, five hours in the extreme heat. When he's got to 100, he walks to the side of the pitch, Dean Jones, and vomits. And he vomits profusely and in public. And then he says to, the, to, to Alan Border, okay, Skip, I, I think I've done all I can. And Border says to him, all right, then. Go back to the pavilion. Send me out someone who wants to bat for Australia. And that's what I feel about you. You're, you're, you're someone who wants to be on the podcast and not just some airy, fairy Dean Jones figure. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, I, yeah. I haven't vomited publicly or profusely yet. Well, not today, anyway. Well, I bet you did at the weekend. We'll talk about that in the, just a second. The day is young. Hello and welcome, as I say, to the view from the lane. And we'll get on to how lucky your Spurs were in a very important win against Brighton. Um, a milestone for the lovely son, as well as asking... Who on earth is the club's new chief football officer? But let's start with the fact that um, you boycotted the game. That's probably too strong a word. You decided to spend your afternoon more productively, uh, James. You went to see the mighty Kingstonian. How did that go for you? Yeah, it actually didn't. It didn't go great actually for me in the end. It, it turned out. Uh, I mean, I had a very nice afternoon, but Kingstonian lost four-one. And the thing I should have mentioned l- last week is that case ever player called Alex McAllister which obviously is kind of unsettlingly close to Alexis McAllister. Is he a World Cup uh, winner, the lad? No. I, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think so. He scored quite an important goal at Bognor Regis, but okay. uh, I, I, other than that, no. And uh, were they deserving of the 4-1 thrashing they got? Uh, yeah, probably, yeah. I, they're a good side can be, Island Danny, so... Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, fa- fairly fairly comprehensive winners you on say, the day. You uh, said that like a plumber who comes in and looks at the goings-on underneath your sink and goes, <laughs> oh, no, you're, no, no, I don't know who did this, because can be, Island, they're, pre- they're a pretty good team. I don't have the knowledge to come back at you, so uh, I have to take your word for it. You have, to, you have to take my word for it. Yeah, so I'd be lying if I said I didn't check my phone a few times during the course of the afternoon and think, hmm, maybe it would have been good to have been at this game. But at the same time... It didn't sound like a classic Spurs performance, and having watched it back since, yeah, and that's probably the worst thing of the decision to to miss the win, yeah, for for a four one defeat, and then have to sit through Spurs playing pretty terribly, uh, and all these dreadful refereeing decisions again, which, as you know, is my absolute favourite thing. Okay, well, let's talk about the game itself. I mean, it was it was an important game for Spurs to win. 
not just because it gives Spurs still some hope of finishing in that top four, but because it, I think it takes Brighton significantly out of the equation. And they will have, we'll talk about how Spurs played in a minute, but Brighton, James, to, to return to your favourite subject, they will have real reason for complaint because, you know, with my neutral head on, the officiating bordered on farcical. I mean, the atmosphere of the game was caused by De Zerbi doing his nut before it started, but the referee got caught up in all sorts of stuff there, and Brighton clearly were on the, the thin end of at least three major decisions. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I, are you kind of suggesting that may have been playing on the referee's mind through the game? It may have almost distracted him? or, or, or No, or, no I but I think, I think the, the atmosphere in the ground, except when there was a moment, when Brighton had the ball for like 80% of the time, um, it's. I mean, I don't care. I was watching it on television, admittedly, but the sound turned up very loud because that's how I do it. The atmosphere of the ground seemed pretty flat at times, but every time the the, the, the coaches got involved with each other, or in fact, let's be honest, Deserby got involved with everybody else, they, it suddenly became quite free, Brahm. No, I'm not suggesting that for one minute. I'm suggesting that the referee and the VAR between them took marginal decisions, all of which seemed... Made me think, yeah, all of which seem to go against Brighton. I mean, that is probably true. I, I would say, having watched it back, and I, and I always wonder when you watch a game back, when you know there's, there have been all these controversial decisions, do you then watch them with a slightly different eye and do you assess them slightly differently? Of course you do, yeah. Are you, are you, you watch them all expecting them to be far more dreadful decisions than they actually are, perhaps. I, I thought the, the, the two disallowed goals, the one that was disallowed in the moment and the one that was disallowed on via, via, through VAR, I think both of those decisions were correct in terms of what we now consider, well, <laughs> what what the, the rulemakers now consider to be handball. I mean, the, the Matoma one is quite far down his arm. There's a lot of toing and froing. That VAR, the assessment of that seemed to go on for quite a long time. It was definitely handball. I didn't get that impression at all, but this is, this is poor. This course is part of the problem, isn't it? I mean, I, once, well, two things. Once, I mean, I thought, I thought it hit him, uh, you know, I thought it was Sissoko level myself. Um, as I now dis- describe these things, <laughs> yes, that's um, the barometer. And, and I would have thought I, I, I didn't, but I didn't think I, I didn't think either of those were handball in the Champions League final or there. And I also worried that the cause of him controlling it with his hand rather than his chest was a push by Romero. And I thought they're going to give that as a penalty anyway, but they Maybe. didn't. But they didn't. No, but, but I mean that's again that, that's classic VAR. The linesman had flagged for the handball right at the start, and then they didn't overrule that. I guess maybe if he hadn't flagged for that, oh, they would it never would have. If 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 yeah. if, if, if it had gone, if, if the referee had allowed the goal, it would never have been disallowed. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah probably, So I suppose had a bit of luck there. I mean, that's for the the second one where Alexis, not Alex McAllister, it's, it's his hand it touches, isn't it? Um, yeah, you know. I feel sorry for him there again, Brighton, a little bit because he the hand wasn't out in some weird place, but it deflects the ball, and that's the, yeah. that rule. I think most of us are in agreement with that rule generally. You can't have people getting the ball in off their hands in, in, into the goal. Uh, of course, in the furore that followed, and we'll talk about the penalty in, in a minute if you want. Nobody said I'm going to say it because I'm, I'm I'm slightly obsessed with it. Not one person said, "Well, suppose we're probably due a little bit of luck." After the the, the, the equaliser again, uh, Southampton's equaliser at St Mary's, where I st- yeah. I've watched it I've watched it a hundred times and I can't see any contact at all. Hang on, here come all the experts. It doesn't have to be contact. Yeah, but there has to be something that gives a penalty other than the referee <laughs> making it up. He made it up, and I, I wonder. You know, I'm not saying he made it up for the drama, but he made it up. And you know, so there's 
Two points Spurs dropped from there and probably two points they gained from the decisions at the weekend. What about the, the thing of Pogmol? Um, and you've got to get a less Lord of the Rings name um, if they're going to really make this thing work. What about Pogmol apologising almost immediately to Brighton? I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem with that in and of itself, but I, I would like... Uh, I mean, how many apologies are we due now? I mean, you just mentioned that one there. But due to... I mean, I think we said it on the podcast at the time. Due to being so distracted by Conte's broadside against the players, I don't think anyone really had time to discuss that. And I think we barely mentioned it on the podcast after the game. So I don't know if that was I've why... I've mentioned it plenty since. Don't worry about that. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know if that's why no one at Spurs kind of thought to complain about that or... Uh, you know, no one at the Premier League or, or uh, the Referees Association have come back with any kind of judgment on it. But it, it was a, you know, that, yeah, you're right. I, I, Spurs, I think more than most teams can probably afford to shrug when these things go our way because like, so often, and I'm sure the reality is you remember the ones that go against your team. You dismiss the ones that go your way. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not suggesting these things do even themselves out over the course of any period of time because that just isn't really how it works. But I think there have been enough bad experiences for us you know, and I still haven't seen, Danny, I still haven't seen this 3D render from the sporting game. Where is the 3D render from the end of the sporting game, the Harry Kane disallowed goal? Um, I will say, you can send out your agents, and I know you have many minions who work at various levels of football, um, and they can search the entire, the far corners of the earth. No such uh, rendering will be available because he wasn't offside. That's just a simple fact of it. Um, and I will not, I, I will not be complicit in VAR. I mean, I already feel guilty enough because I banged on for 10 years about bringing in some assistance for, for the officials, how wrong I was. But I will not be complicit. I will not say, oh, yeah, well, it was offside, you know. And when, I, when the evidence of your own eyes, your own God-given eyes, tells you that it wasn't offside, and I will not pretend it was a penalty um, just for the sake of be, you know, being in with a bunch of people who are saying, yes, it was a penalty. We'll get onto the football in a second. What did you make of the carry-on between the... The, the technical areas, the benches. As far as I can see, De Zerbi appears to have taken umbrage about a sentence translated back into Italian from an Italian speaker speaking English about his picking up the reins so successfully from Graham Potter at Brighton. He seems to have taken umbrage with this and started from the, before the game. And I don't know how, I don't know whether if the highlights package you saw showed it. But it, it it was almost Thomas Tuchel and Antonio Conte part two. Yeah. So so we think he's rattled by the suggestion that he has merely developed on or built upon what Graham Potter had started at Brighton, which I don't think is necessarily uh, uh, criticising or undermining the work he has done. I mean, su- suggesting it has been a development of. He's obviously moved on. He has taken over that club with that group of players uh, but they play a slightly different style of football. They clearly score a lot more goals now than they did before, which is obviously their big problem before. But yeah, it did seem incredibly strange to be quite so annoyed about something said by a, a caretaker manager of an unperforming team. Like, like I mean, I mean, surely the, what you should be doing there is going out, trying to win the game, and then give it afterwards, rather than doing it before the game in front of everybody and during every possible and, opportunity, and, and and for the first what, sixty-four minutes or whatever it was of the game until he gets sent off. Yeah, I was really bewildered by that. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, and this was the one thing that I, I mean, I, I saw the video of this on the terrace at Kingstonian. Actually, this is the one thing I had seen there. Aha! Uh-huh. And this actually did probably live up to the madness that I expected. In fact, it's probably even more mad. I just can't think that I've really ever. Seen seen 
no, normally when these things happen, you get these big set twos, you know it's coming. Like, you know, you know, it's like the sort of, uh, when everyone was watching that John Terry Wainbridge handshake, you know, and then there were moments where managers meet each other, where they've been at each other's throats for ages. M- Mourinho's press. performances against Barcelona, where they were, one was built on top of another, on top of another, until he poked somebody in the eye. Um, they, they, were, they were coming. We all knew they were coming. The cameras were trained on the situations, yeah. Like Mourinho Wenger as well got quite heated, I think, as well, didn't it, when Mourinho was at Chelsea first time round. In those situations, they were kind of almost telegraphed. You knew they were coming. But this, I don't think there was any sense. And I'd seen those quotes. Uh, that, that, well, nobody, uh, nobody had said afterwards, in, in your part of the profession, nobody had said, he slammed him. He slammed him. There was no, no exactly. slammage. There was no slammage whatsoever. It all felt fairly innocuous. I mean, maybe if it had been a, a journal, a, a, a room full of journalists who covered Brighton, maybe it would have been different. But I don't, I don't think you know those tweets were around in the ether for almost what forty six hours, yeah. probably slightly uh, forty eight hours, yeah. probably slightly longer than that by the time the game started. So, I, yeah, I, I'm really, I was really surprised by that. I, I was, uh, I mean, it did kind of tally with this sense that Deservey is quite an intense person, uh, and I suppose that does kind of cut. Both ways. Well, I mean, you say by the time the game started, of course, the game was delayed because the referee who went to go on to have such an odd game in many ways, um, the referee was late coming on um, with the apparently ever uh, finickety technology they use for their earpieces and what have you. I thought about De Zerbi, and we will get on the Spurs, I'm sorry. I thought about De Zerbi as well. I wonder whether he was involved with the idea that people were suggesting he might make a good manager for Spurs and he was using it as some kind of audition and to show how he gets involved with the game. But if you're Daniel Levy, you're thinking to yourself, that's just what we need, actually. Another absolute Italian hothead down there on the side of the pitch. That's just what I need. I'll go for that. Yeah, well, another manager here who's going to be sent to the stands and miss a load of matches on the touchline. Yeah, I, 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 I'd be amazed if that was a factor in it. I just can't see that. He would think being that aggressive and, and, and let's face it, unprofessional would get him anywhere. And, and we have to probably, we should defend Stellini, by the way, because, you know, to, to be sent off effectively for a technicality, which is ultimately failing to control your coaching staff. I have to be honest, I had no idea about that law. I've got to be honest. No, me neither. No. That must have come up. That must have happened loads of times where the other staff have been like, like crossing the line and the the manager hasn't been sent off. That's really weird. I mean, Stellini made such an obvious point of standing there yeah. uh, alone, like an Easter Island statue, staring straight out into the middle distance. I He was he could have got a big placard saying, I am not involved in this nonsense. And when he got the red card, I was bewildered. Surely that's a moment for the referee to kind of just say to him, listen, you have to keep your... keep these." I mean, look, this probably happened before that. Obviously, it'd be going on for ages. But surely... Common sense needs to prevail. I'm just starting to sound like talk sport now. Common sense needs to prevail, Danny. Yeah, common sense and talk sport, of course. That's that. That's that's a brilliant thing. Um, I I wonder whether the referee just thought I'm I'm, I'm going to do a load of mad things today. I might as well send them one. Look here, who is, who is the least guilty over that tall fella with the kind of the scrubby beard? I'll send him off. That's what I'll do. All of which is a smokescreen for the fact that um, Spurs on the day, James. Played at home against a decent team. Let's not, you know, let's not pretend that Brighton have arrived from the Eind Coop League. That's one for the teenagers there. But to have twenty five percent, twenty seven percent possession at home for long stretches of the game shows it was just another one of those games. Brighton were really good, and you know, could have won the game. Probably should have won the game. I'll just make a point here of saying that. Lloris, who got plenty of clog for various things during the game, the two saves he made 
from the shots from the edge of the area from McAllister and Caicedo, Forster would not have got down to either of those, as we saw at Leicester. Um, so for all his weediness when punching the ball, things like that, he actually made two brilliant saves to keep Spurs on the on the right side of the scoreline. And the game was reduced in the end. First of all, he talked to me about, you know, there's been no change. They, they played deep and relied on the brilliance of individuals, Son's goal, or on a breakaway goal where every pass has to be exactly right. And that's how Kane's winner came about. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it, it wasn't vastly different. I mean, I think it would be slightly misleading to say they were letting Brighton have those massive passages of knocking the ball around. Obviously, that isn't quite fair. It'd be unfair on Brighton. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, uh, that, that is kind of their style of play now, isn't it? Sit deep, try and win the ball back don't stretch yourselves, don't leave any spaces, and then try and hit them on the counter-attack. And Son scored a very Son goal. Kane scored quite a Kane goal, really. And maybe not the kind of goal he scored too many of this season, but that is the kind of area where he has scored goals in the past. So on a counter-attack as well. So I suppose they might argue, the coaching staff, Stellini might argue... Uh, that it all went to plan, but I'd be very surprised if they were entirely satisfied with that. I mean, I, the thing about the second, the winning goal, um, as it turned out to be, I would say is we have been quite vocal in trying to tell Christian Romero to get on with playing the football and stop the antics. He didn't take much notice of us uh, at the weekend, but the goal comes from him challenging for the ball, winning the ball 10 yards inside the opposition's half. He, he gets the ball, plays it on to Son, Son gets around the corner to Hoiberg, he squares it and, and the goal goes in. It wouldn't have happened without Romero's intervention. There were one or two moments in the commentary, uh, sorry, on the on the coverage where he was he had he hadn't got that tackle in way out the pitch and he was walking back towards his own goal. Now I don't know whether it, that's deliberate because there were plenty of Spurs players back, as there always are these days, and he, you know, he's supposed to he can afford to stand, but he he literally was wandering. Like a, a person on a stroll in the park, back towards his own goal. It was, it was odd, but he, he did make a huge contribution uh, to the winning goal. Can we talk about Dan Juma's contribution? To the I'd love goal to well? hear about that Dan Juma's contribution to the winning goal. I mean, only just come on the pitch, but he makes that run that pulls all the defenders away from Kane, and gives him that that time to hit the ball on the edge of the box. So it, it, even without touching the ball, he he played his part. Well, it, it, particularly when you play on the break, the players who haven't got the ball do have a hugely important role to play there. Who do you think made the decision to bring on Dan Juma? <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I guess in a way, it wasn't really a massive departure because he was on for what, like sort of 14 minutes or whatever it was. So it's not like, you know, he, but, well, it's the first time he's been on the pitch for a long time. Yeah, but I, I you know, so do you think it was a Mason shout? No, once Stellini was gone, you I think, haven't a clue. Was... I haven't a clue. It could be either Ryan Mason decided it, Stellini somehow communicating with him, or Stellini looking at that yellow pager he's got to see what Conte wants him to do. <laughs> I'm not certain. I mean, there's no chance it was that last one for, for multiple reasons. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it was Mason just deciding, oh, fuck it, yeah, let's go. Let's chuck him on and see what happens. And, uh, and, can, you, know. and you can just imagine, as as Arno was getting his uh, shin pads in, um, Richarlison looking at Ryan Mason at the corner of his eye, although we don't know how super fit Richarlison would have been. In the end, I, I really, it was it was great that they won the game, but that's because, you know, those who listen to the podcast will know how 
how agitated I get about the way they're playing, but I still want them to win the football matches. I, I, Newcastle were behind at one stage, weren't they? And I, I was I was filled momentarily with hope, but then you forget that Newcastle are a really consistent team uh, these days. We, all of which brought, and of course, we do have uh, your way of getting uh, in touch with us. And the View from Lane now has uh, an email uh, address, uh, VF. VFTL at theathletic.com, VFTL at theathletic.com, in which you can send us voice notes. We'll hear from one of those later, or just your view on something. And Connor McDougall, what a lovely Celtic name that is. Connor McDougall uh, sent us a question and said, is it better to be lucky than good in football? It's a wide philosophical question for you, James. This is a really, a real coward's answer to your question. I will answer properly in a second. I think that depends on your definition of better, because it's, in results terms, it's a different thing to uh, like your enjoyment as a fan. Like you're enjoy- like you'd probably much prefer to be good in terms of the emotional experience of supporting a football team. But it's quite funny to be lucky sometimes. Yeah, like uh, I found it like the agitation of you know I've got nothing against Brighton at all. You know, and I think they're great. They've done brilliantly well. Their recruitment is amazing. They've found two very good managers in a row. They keep finding amazing players. They're obviously a very well-run club. It's brilliant what football. they're doing. Yes, yeah. But to see all their fans and loads of other people on their behalf getting so agitated on Saturday night was incredibly funny. It was incredibly funny. And that is the cruelty of football, isn't it? Equally, to give you an example, you know, um, earlier in the season when we got the late equaliser at Chelsea, totally undeserved. But the late away equaliser undeserved equaliser away from home is one of the funniest things that ever happens. It's It's not funny when it happens to you. And also, it, it's not as good when it happens all the time. And we saw in the first half of the season when Spurs were winning quite a lot, but it was often unconvincing. And, you know, you and I on this podcast were getting quite agitated about it. And we could kind of tell, you know, these things never last. And sure enough, we were right. So you, I think you need, as in most things in life, you need the balance, Danny, of the two things, luck and goodness. Thank you very, very much indeed for that, Connor. And let me remind you once again, that address is vftl at theathletic.com. I just want to put in five minutes on something else here, James, and it's it started to bother me a little bit, and it shouldn't. I watched the game live in the EU, therefore I had local commentators, Irish and Irish-connected commentators. The co-commentator was Gary Breen. Now, I've worked with Gary in the past, perfectly decent guy indeed. We share a great deal in common. He went to the same school as me. Though, as I always point out to him, he wasn't the best footballer who went to St. Aloysius in Highgate. That was Joe Cole over the years, and Gary has to accept that. I watched the, I watched the little ticker. It was one minute and three seconds into the game when, when a Spurs player went down and got a free kick. It might have been dire. I can't remember exactly. And he said, oh, look, he's been taking lessons from the captain. And he and the commentator, whose name escapes me right now, during the course of the game, must have made 15 references to Harry Kane, how Harry Kane probably has to leave Spurs, how Harry Kane is the leader of the, uh, the, 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 the sort of diving gang in the world. And at one stage, and the director was obviously confused, they were talking about Harry Kane, again, under their breath, and saying, oh, he is a master of the dark arts. And they put up a picture of Christian Romero. <laughs> I mean, and, but they were talking about Kane. And this is nothing new, is it? Um, we've seen Ian Dark getting into trouble on Twitter um, for signalling out, singling out Harry Kane for criticism after the sending off in the, in the previous game. James, you work in the industry. You know all these people. What is going on with a player who, you know, like all professional players, seeks to gain an advantage 
within the laws, I think, usually. But Captain of England, clean cut, why is he so considered to be such fair game? And is the answer simply that by having a go at him, you keep yourself in the language of of the youth relevant? I mean, maybe it's a bit of that. And I do also think it's, it is partly the thing you said before that about him being quite clean cut and actually sort of in terms of his image and the perception of him is that he's quite sort of boring, really. You know, he's not like a sort of Jack Greenish or whatever. No, he's not Jack, is um, he? So there is, it's like when you're that high, when you're that big a figure in the game, there has to be something that you can pick away at. And, uh, you know, I think the phrase you used before was right. He is kind of, he's being singled out for for this gamesmanship. He isn't the only person that's doing these things. There's, there's nothing he does that no one else does. You know, two years ago, there was this big fuss about him backing in for aerial challenges when loads of other players do that. And they've all, you know, they've always done that. They've been doing that for and years. He's, he's and he, and James, that. well done. He'd bring that. He's largely stopped that, perhaps under yeah. pressure. But equally, as I pointed out to people at the time, the only known example of somebody getting badly hurt going over the top of other players like that, you know, going over their shoulders, was Steve Morrow uh, when Arsenal were celebrating a, a, a cup final win. And Steve Morrow went over the shoulders of his own colleagues and, and dislocated it and broke his arm, didn't he? I mean, it, it, the examples are, are minuscule, but I take your point, and I think he stopped doing that to, some, to, to a large extent now, possibly because he was told to, you know. So I, I, I kind of think people are just looking for something to kind of pick away at. I, and I don't really see, and again, we'll, we'll have to kind of acknowledge our own biases here. I don't really see that there's anything he does that's so outrageous or, or so egregious. I, I mean, that, it, it, and that, I can't get my head around the Decore one last week still. People are people still to still be going on about that. When we've all seen now the photo of Decore like, digging his fingers into four or five different parts of his face. Uh, you know, I, I'm amazed that people are, are still are still picking at that. I, and, you know, for someone lucky and dark who's watched probably more Premier League football than most people, to, to think that that's where the bar should be, should be raised or lowered to, depending on your perspective, I think it's pretty crazy. I, I, it's kind of unfathomable, really. I think in some of the cases of the journalists, because he has been so stubborn in not doing what they want him to do, i.e. join a different and in their minds bigger club. I suspect he's fair game because he somehow has let everybody down by staying at Spurs for 10 years. I mean, that is quite, that is quite interesting because Grealish obviously did do that thing and left his boyhood club, first club, when that, you know the, fir- the first time those rumours came around, he made the big transfer in the fir- at the first opportunity, more or less, as, as kind of expected and despite probably having made far more, definitely having made far more missteps than Harry Kane probably on and off the pitch, and having a you know bad first season at City. But it gets far less scrutiny and criticism from the media and the general public than Harry Kane. And I, you know, and, and I will I will give, you know, the, the commentators I watch you with, you know, there is a slight, I've got to be honest here, since honesty as well as being open um, about things is important. Of course, he's captain of England. There's a, there is still a, yeah. a real rivalry between the Republic yeah, yeah, of Ireland yeah. and historically and sportingly. Um, and of course, the captain of England is going to get a little bit of clog over here. Bolso, I mean, Bolso in England, the captain, uh, the captain of England should be getting more scrutiny than other players, I guess. That does kind of make sense. But it doesn't feel like the level, that increase of scrutiny quite tallies with his stature to me. It, it, it feels like it's coming from a, a, a slightly more better place than that. I don't, I don't think it's about holding him to high standards. It feels like it's about, you know, trying to kind of tear him down. It's, it's, it, you're using the modern terminology 
bits I'd also say for me, it all seems so weird. I mean, I'm usually, <laughs> and I'm usually a massive fan of weird, I've got to be honest, but it was just weird. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. A quick piece of news. I don't expect you to have all the inside gen gathered up yet, uh, James. Spurs have appointed somebody called Scott Munn to do a job called Chief Football Officer. I don't know whether that puts him in the hierarchy of the apparently ever-growing army of people between Daniel Levy and the, the team. I, I do know a little bit about him. He's been a great success in, in various um, sporting endeavours, not all of them to do with soccer uh, in Australia. Do you know much about him? I don't expect not, you to. Not a, no, no, not a, not a great deal, no. I mean, I guess this does kind of speak for that thing that has been said before that I, I think Jack as much as on the podcast actually at Spurs there aren't really that many people in those kind of jobs like Levy attended to just take on so much of the workload and there weren't actually an army of people around him like there are at like most of the other kind of big quote-unquote super league level clubs so I, I mean actually obviously it's been a bit of a suggestion this might be a move to replace Paratici but for two reasons one for that reason that I just mentioned that I think they're probably trying pad out the staff and two that with high-ranking people like this at big football clubs or, or groups in this case I, I don't imagine this is a thing that's happened quickly I mean this could have been going on for months and months and months I think surely I don't I don't imagine this is a thing that's happened purely in the last two weeks since uh, we had that ruling on Paratity so I'd be surprised if the two things were linked I mean, obviously, this, the the way that it all slots together could change slightly if Bratty does end up leaving. Uh, but I wouldn't have thought this is a response to that. Yeah, I mean, James, I, I, I because I've only known you for a year and a half, and I don't spend a lot of time with you in the pub because of our geographical uh, di- disproximity, if that's the word I'm looking for, I can never tell who are your sworn enemies in football. I know you have some tremendously well-cultivated grudges and things. So I don't know, when I say the phrase, Jonathan Wilson of The Guardian, I'm just looking for a response. I've never met Jonathan Wilson. I think he's the most unlikely person in the fo- in the football media for me to have not met. I think. Okay. I just haven't met yeah, him I was going to say that's why. It I... feels like the sort of person I would have met, but I haven't. Well, Jonathan Wilson on Saturday, quite by coincidence, was writing a piece um, I thought was a very interesting uh, adjunct to the appointment of Scott Munn, which had happened 24 hours earlier, at least the news had broken, saying that we've now left behind. We started with football being about the dominant players. Then we've had the age of the managers. We're now moving into the age of the executives where um, these highly paid career football executives, they're not people who've come out of the sort of butchery business and happen to be on the board of football clubs. They are career football politicians to all intents and purposes whose job is to is to make sure that sooner or later the club attracts a sugar daddy. Uh, it's a really interesting piece and I recommend it to you And because it, it just happened to coincide with the appointment of Scott Munn. Let us talk about more pleasant things completely. Let us talk about Son Hoon Ming. Ericsson tried to pass it into the corner. Son! Super finish! Tottenham double their lead with a moment of real quality. Son tries his luck. They have replied in kind. 
The name of the game is shoot. Son's there and he's won it. Hung Min Son right at the end has won it for Tottenham. Would you believe it? Look at the celebrations. Look at the scenes. Son with another chance and Son with another goal. What a start for Tottenham Hotspur in Manchester. Son now. Lead to the left. Son on a mission to go alone. This is sensational. Hundred Premier League goals coming out in a season where he, by his own admission he has been way off the boil. Though it does look like it's every chance that he will get to double figures yet again for Premier League goals. I think we have to be honest, James, that the last decade at Spurs with with Kane and Son, we have been hugely lucky first and foremost, and then hugely privileged to watch these two playing individually and together. And I was thrilled for Son and Ming every every you know. Kane breaks a record every time he touches the ball these days, but for him to get the hundred goals, it is, is some. It, it's it's an arbitrary landmark, but it is a great landmark. And you have to say, messing about with his form this this, this season, notwithstanding, what a player, what a man. Yeah, I don't, oh, look, you mentioned this season, but actually, I looked at uh, Spurs put out a video of his hundred Premier League goals. I, I think it was like a hundred goals in a hundred seconds, and it's really noticeable that he only scored three goals in his first three Premier League. He goals really in his struggled first at first, yeah. And yeah, and I think that there was a suggestion that he might even leave after that first season. Well, he he himself wanted to leave. He was finding it so difficult. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, actually, he kind of boil most of those two uh, the hundred goals into the what will it be five seasons in the middle of those of those two. Yeah, it is incredibly impressive. And the fact that from uh, looking at tweets on Saturday night, I think a lot of people, non-Spurs fans, I think most Spurs fans knew this was coming, but a lot of non-Spurs fans were surprised he hadn't already done it. Which is probably like a testament yeah, to the number seems, of Yeah, because he seems to score every two weeks, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly. And look, ultimately, not playing as a centre-forward, there aren't that many players, if you look at that list of the top scorers, Mo Salah would be the other one that stands out. There aren't many players who don't play as centre-forward who score that many goals. No, he's been... He's been uh, he'd been uh, that during the time he was acclimatizing and wasn't doing well. I must admit, I I clung to Modric's first six months at Spurs, where he really was struggling to understand the way people play in the Premier League, particularly the closing down of space. And as soon as as Modric worked out that if he took the ball slightly more on the half turn, he would always have that extra quarter of a second. Then after that, there was no stopping him. Uh, Son is also someone that, we, we, you know, we don't we don't know what footballs are like these days. We just don't spend any time with them. The post match interviews are examples of media trained obfuscation by and large. James Madison being the obvious uh, exception, who likes to discuss the game and his own contribution at great length and in great detail. But it appears that you know everything about Son appears that you know he's a, he's a, a beloved teammate. He he never causes any trouble. Do you have a favourite moment of his on or off the pitch? I knew we were going to do this, so I watched that video to to, to try and pick a favourite goal, and I ended up having to pick five. The, 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 these are these are only in chronological. This is order, why the podcast in, uh, takes two hours, and I'm all for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> um, interestingly, the most recent of the five was the second one against Manchester City in the Champions League. One of his kind of trademark yeah. ones out from the left, bent into the top corner. Amazing. Uh, not not entirely unlike the one he scored on Saturday, although I think that was probably slightly further out. Right, so in, in chronological order from first to last, the first was in one of the three in that first season, which you might remember the back heel at Watford, kind of a little instep flick in injury time to win a game at Watford over Christmas. Yes, yes. Which I think... I've not checked this. I think I'm right in saying might have been when Spurs, the first time Spurs went into the top four that season, maybe. It was an important goal, like yeah. I, I remember thinking... It definitely yeah. felt like a really big moment in that season. Obviously, they got into the Champions League and were kind of in the title race for a bit. The second one was a volley, like a sort of bicycle kick against Swansea at White Hart Lane in 2016-17, which is the only goal I've ever seen which I saw in the flesh and that actually was as good as I thought it was when I saw it back on TV later that night. Like it's more often than not, you watch a goal back and it's not quite as good as you thought. Like there's a deflection or a weird little touch or whatever, but it was actually as good. Header against Huddersfield at Wembley, like a, like a very strange, like an unusual looking head, like a kind of cushioned header into the far post on the run. Uh, the goal against West Ham at Wembley, they're kind of 35 yarder. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, the one against City in the Champions League. So those are my five. And that excludes the Puskas winner against Burnley when he runs through the whole team. On a very early episode of his podcast, I said that goal wasn't as good as the Sissoko goal from the same game. And I stand by that. I, I don't like goals like that. It's overrated. Why? Sorry, just 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 from uh, indulge me who wasn't on that podcast. Why don't you like goals like that? I don't know. I just kind of, I, 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 I don't know. I'd kind of prefer there to be something more explosive, maybe, about a goal. I don't know. There to, to be like one moment that really cap- encapsulates it, and it just felt like it's sort of a drawn out thing. I just don't find it as exciting. Okay. And um, this is one of the reasons why people talk behind your back. I've got to be honest. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I yeah. always stick up for you when people start up behind your back, but that is why I can see how people get some of their odd views about you. I mean, I thought that that was extra special because it was against Burnley. Who had, who at that time had eight outfield players, any one of whom would have been happy to do a tactical foul, but they couldn't get to him. Um, I guess my own joy at him uh, comes a bit off the pitch, really. Do you remember in the, I think it was in the, around the time that they were making the run towards the Champions League final, when there was a little film, the players, they found a, a Korean woman, God bless her, in the hotel they're all staying and persuaded us to knock on the door. Um, to make out that she was some, you know, that she she was a super fan or even a groupie, um, and then they filmed the resultant um, interlude. And he answered the door. She said, "I'm I'm here to see you, Mister Mister Son." And instead of being either, uh, I think I think he already worked out that he's way ahead of his teammates there. And he was so charming to her and suggested they go downstairs to get a cup of coffee together. He just seems like an incredibly decent human being. And that's why I found his struggles this season agony, actually. To watch a player who I know is on his day as good as anybody, and I'll use that phrase, um, to watch him stumbling about without the confidence to play the ball properly and running into the opposition and giving the ball away again and again and again and again. The amount of football you've watched over the years tells you this must turn. You can't be this talented and suddenly be gone. Although, of course, Deli Alley. Um, shows that you can fall away. But a lot of Delhi's issues, I think, have come from perhaps a distri- being distracted from the game itself, and it doesn't seem to be Son's problem. So congratulations to him. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and I hope now he will go on one of these tears that he sometimes does where he gets six goals in four games. I certainly, with the fixtures that are coming up, we could do with him getting six goals in four games in these huge games Spurs have got uh, coming up. 
Let's talk about um, what, what some of the questions we've had from the listeners. Again, sent to us at uh, VFTL uh, at theathletic.com. This is Glenn Freeman asking about uh, Dejan Kulusevsky's form. Hi, guys. Love the show. Uh, I had a question for you about Kulusevsky. I think Danny picked up on this a week or two ago, his sort of drop-off in form. I just wonder what you guys think is behind that. You know, he was so key to everything that was good about us, particularly last season. Um, just where's his form gone? You know, is it is it you know struggling to come back after injury? Have teams worked him out? Is he is he paying for someone like Ben Tanker not being in the side? Just wonder what your guys' thoughts were on where his form's gone because it feels to me at the moment like you know him and Son are kind of in a battle for who can be our least effective attacking player at the moment. Cheers. Well, th- thank you, Glenn. Um, and I love those ones where you ask the question and answer it comprehensively uh, in the same voice note. I think there's a, a number of factors here. Glenn touched on some of them, James. Obviously, um, he's a very, very physical unit, Kulusevsky. And sometimes players like that take a long time to recover peak match fitness. I think the fact that K, sorry, the Son has been so poor means that teams have got, you know, more resources to look after him. And I think thirdly, and you may have other things you want to say, you know, coaches are allowed to react. Spurs, when they were bang, this time last year, when they were knocking three and four past teams, um, coaches are allowed to look at that and say, we need to stop Kulusevsky. Yeah, and four, I would say, maybe. He's played a lot less with Emerson Royale in the second half of the season than he did before his injury or last season, I guess. And I know we kind of suspected or thought that Kulusevsky and Pedro Porro would dovetail far better, but maybe it just is that, I don't know, that other partnership maybe was working better for him. I, I think, you know, without wanting to sound uh, like too much of a cop-out, I, I, I suspect it's a bit of a perfect storm, a bit like Son, where it's a combination of all of the above, probably. I mean, those injuries, particularly for an explosive player, as you say, they do take time to come back from. When, you, when you're fitting out on the pitch for the first game, that doesn't mean you're entirely sharp and re- ready to fire straight And away. he's in a struggling so, team. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so add that, add that he's to He's contributing list. to a struggling team by struggling himself, but he's also in a team that's not getting the absolute best out of him. Um, so you're right. I think the perfect storm is, is a fair way of answering uh, Glenn's question. Um, let's get one more. And this is Owen Sorrell, who asks, um, what do you think a rebuild looks like for Spurs and how long do you think it would take uh, to get to a to a you know a successful point. Well, I mean, we're four years in so far to the painful rebuild, so it's at least four years. In terms of what that looks like, I think it kind of has slowly been happening. If you look at the kind of peak Pochettino team that we always talk about, we are quite a long way from that now. And we we talked about Kane and Son already on this podcast. You mentioned Lloris as well, but it's those three in dire. I think I suppose Ben Davis is in the squad, but there's not like too many other players who were around at that point. You know, if Pochettino was to come back in the summer, it's not like the place would be absolutely full of players he worked with before. There'd be a few there, but not loads. So it does kind of feel like there has been a bit of an evolution. And most of the players, you know, if you look at Romero, Porro, Bentinker, Kulusevski, Saab, Skip, they're all kind of in the right sort of age bracket. I mean, we know... They need to sign at least one more centre-back. We know they need to sign another goalkeeper. We know they need to sign a creative midfielder player, at least one, probably another one. You didn't mention Richarlison as well, I think, is every danger that he will come to. Richarlison is 20 or 25. Yeah, Yeah. exactly, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it kind of feels like there there has been a steady evolution. It's probably not happened quite as quickly as most people would have wanted or that Spurs would have needed. But I kind of think they're well on the way to it. I think they're probably only kind of three or four players away, the right players, away from 
or, or maybe kind of four, four or five players away from being at the kind of level they were at before. I honestly think that, which it actually probably is quite a lot when you're talking about having to spend big money on players or getting it entirely right every time. Uh, I hear that, but it also depends on getting a, a relationship between the manager and the players and the players and the crowd. What I would say about this is there is grounds for optimism. It's been a dark season for Spurs. I have not enjoyed watching them. Uh, James has cut, cut himself adrift from them um, to go and watch Kingstonian get a hammering. I think that the idea of rebuilds is actually slightly a misnomer in modern football because I think unless you are Manchester City, Bayern Munich, Paris Saint-Germain, um, who have their own, you know, the latter had two of their own problems just now, you're in constantly in rebuild because the game moves so quickly. I don't think you can say this is our team and we're going to change it. Liverpool have allowed themselves to get into the Spurs situation of three years ago where they, they've relied on the same players for too long. So they there, there is some rebuild to be done. The optimism comes from the fact that I think it's been shown by several clubs just how quickly these things can change. It is less than two years ago that Arsenal fans were flying aeroplanes past the ground to get rid of the manager. And they are still top of the table and playing, face it, Spurs fans, playing some lovely, lovely stuff. And they're a team with grit as well, which you, you wouldn't all of us always have associated with them. Newcastle United have not spent billions on their team. They will do, but they haven't yet. They've got a manager who gets them to play positive front foot football, and they've turned that round in a year. Burnley Football Club, and it's slightly different because they were able to get rid of all their players in one go because of the relegation. Burnley were the most negative team in the top divisions of, of, of any league in Europe. Spurs have now taken their crown. Burnley, in the space of 12 months, in the space of eight months, have completely turned it round and are returning to the Sunlit Uplands of the Premier League with all guns blazing and banners astream. It can be done. Football is not... This thing you're talking about, the project and three years and five years, these are not... These are not... Shackleton's ship trapped in the ice in the Antarctic. These are things that are about attitude, belief. And I think if Spurs get the right manager, the players, even with the players they've got, they will have to add a creative midfield and they'll have to stop playing three centre-halves marking no one as they did the other day against Brighton when Welbeck just pulled deep and leaving three Spurs defenders staring at each other. But I think it's perfectly doable. And I know I'm an incorrigible optimist, and you'd have thought that the passage of time and supporting Spurs would have taken the edges off that for me, but it hasn't. I think it can be done, and the rebuild looks like getting the right manager, making the players believe they can play a more attractive, forward-looking brand of football, and I think from that flows a great deal of happiness for the fans. Um, so while we've made an absolute bish of it in the last three managerial appointments, a bish of the so-called rebuild, I think it can be done. And I'm waiting to see who they're going to come up with for the project. Any more news on that, James? <laughs> no, nah, you can't be taking them, can you? No, no, of course not. No, that's what you have your your army um, of of. Uh, I don't want to call them robots or puppets. Um, highly paid journalists. That's what you have them for investigating. But they couldn't be bothered to turn up for today's podcast. And more fools them because we've just shown it can be done with just two people if they're the right people on the front foot talking about Spurs. It's been a joy. Thank you very much. Thank you for downloading and listening. If you've enjoyed it, tell your friends. If you haven't, tell them anyway. Only the remains for me to say, I say, thank you again for listening. And to remind you, as I always do, that you 
I think, you know, you should be an athletic subscriber. There's fantastic stuff about Spurs and a load of other stuff too, often um, about the state of football in a wider sense that I find fascinating. Um, so just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for $1.99 a month, or just $1.99 a month, I should say, for the first 12 months. That address again is theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Again, thank you all for listening. We'll be back on Thursday. Definitely me, probably James, and anybody else can be bothered to show up. Thanks again. The Athletic.